0: really fitting encouragement to many of us, given that we've spent much of our time on a Sunday uh, studying Exodus and the law, as well as the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope it is equally encouraging to you as well this morning. But first, let me briefly pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open your word, and we ask that you would open our eyes to its truth. That you would, by your spirit, illumine the text to us, convict us of sin, point us to the hope that we have in Christ alone. Use your word to speak to us, help my words not to get in the way. We ask all of this in the name of your son, amen. And So this morning we're going to be in Galatians in chapter 3 starting in verse 1, which should be on the screen behind me. So if you are willing and able, would you please stand with me as I read from God's word? Galatians 3, 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, man of faith. Please be seated. Sometimes you have the opportunity in a friend's life to speak some tough love, to offer some harsh feedback, some uninvited, I should say, uh, criticism even. Sometimes your friends make decisions Uh, that require some intervention. Maybe they have started dating someone who encourages them uh, to not honor the Lord. Or maybe they are pursuing their work at such frenzy that they're neglecting their relationships. The book of Galatians is one such intervention written by the Apostle Paul directed to the church in Galatia and believers there. The book of Galatians, the region of Galatia is in modern day Turkey. And this is where Paul visited on his first missionary journey described in Acts 13 and 14. This is one of probably the earliest epistles, the earliest letters written by Paul uh, in the late 40s AD. So as Paul planted churches, you may remember uh, the names of towns like Antioch, Pisidia, or Lystra, Derby. These are all in this region of Galatia, where Paul would have established churches and would have known these believers. Uh, If you do have your Bible uh, in front of you, I encourage you to have that, as we'll be referencing Galatians 3 a lot. But turn with me briefly to Acts 13, so you can get a sense of what... Paul did in his ministry there. Acts 13, we're going to be looking at verses 48 and 49. Acts 13, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Jump down to 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This was the work of God in the churches in Galatia, that the gospel was going forth, that people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what Paul left when he left those towns. But by the time we get to the book of Galatians, some time has passed, not very long, we think, but Paul receives word that not all is well with the church. Now to take you back to this time, set the stage a little bit to understand what issues are going on in Galatians, in the first century, many of, most of the church was composed of Jewish believers who saw Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, and so These Jewish believers would have observed the law. They attended synagogue each week. They honored the Sabbath. They circumcised their children, their male children, on the eighth day. And so the question for many early churches was what ought to be required of Gentile believers? What ought to be required of believers who aren't Jewish by birth? Did they also need to adhere to the Old Testament law Or, was following Jesus just Judaism plus, or was it something entirely different, something different from the law altogether? And so some Jewish believers thought that anyone who wasn't a Jew, Gentiles, needed to follow the Jewish law in order to worship Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And so one major demonstration of that, according to the law, is that your male sons are circumcised. God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that circumcision would be a sign, a marker, of the covenant that he has made with him, indicating worshippers of Yahweh. And so some believers, Jewish believers, in this first century in the church, called Judaizers, would say yes gentiles are allowed they're free to follow jesus but in order to do so faithfully they must be circumcised in accordance with the law they would argue that both christ and the law the crucifixion and circumcision jesus and ritual mark someone as saved by god but paul in galatians he writes this letter because he says that is antithetical. That is the exact opposite, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is based on unmerited, undeserved grace from God, expressed through faith, confidence, and trust in him. If you look in Galatians, just a little bit before our passage this morning, in verse 16 of chapter two, he writes, "'Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be made right with God, declared righteous before God through works of the law. And so here in chapter three, Paul warns the Galatians that they are being foolish to heed those who insist on circumcision Oh, foolish Galatians, he writes, who has bewitched you? Paul asked them in verse 3, are you so foolish? The way you're acting as is, as, is as if someone has put a spell on you, someone has bewitched you. These are strong words, and we ought to receive them strongly. But this word foolish that we're looking at this morning is not what you may typically think of as a fool foolish here isn't quite the opposite of wise foolish in Galatians is used isn't the word that is typically used in the Bible for foolish such as in the book of Proverbs or in Psalm 53 that says the fool says in his heart there is no God typically foolish refers to lacking a proper understanding a proper perspective that regulates behavior so when you have the perspective, for example, that you don't know what the future holds, you don't know what tomorrow will be like, you don't squander all your wealth in one place, you make prudent choices about savings, these are all things that we can find in the book of Proverbs about fools. Foolish here in Galatians 3, however, is anuetos, meaning without thinking, not having reasoned through something. The foolish Christian, according to Paul, is one who hasn't thought through the natural consequences of their actions and beliefs. And so Paul is hoping to unveil how the act of insisting on circumcision for Gentile believers, insisting on adherence to the law as a means of salvation, it's not only a distortion of the gospel, but a wholesale departure from Christ. And so... While the Galatians have been foolish, Paul writes this letter to remind them of the true gospel that they've forgotten. And in it, we see our tendency to be foolish as well. And so to help organize our our time this morning, we're going to look at our passage by three things that the foolish Christian forgets, and by contrast, what we as followers of Jesus Christ ought to remember this morning. Three things the foolish Christian forgets. And here in verse 1, the first thing the foolish Christian forgets is the work of Christ. Read with me in verse 1. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Publicly portrayed is a single word that is akin to a royal edict that's being nailed on uh, in the town square. It's an email blast sent out to the entire company. It's a school-wide announcement that you might hear at an assembly. It's almost as if someone is painting you a picture. You're hearing it through your ears, but you can see it. You can visualize it in your mind's eye. He says that Christ's crucifixion was vividly displayed in the preaching and the teaching that they received, he's not saying necessarily that the Galatians were eyewitnesses to the event of the crucifixion, but they were eyewitnesses to its impacts. It was before their eyes that the importance of Christ and the importance of his work was displayed in the clearest terms. So how was Christ portrayed to them in verse 1? It says he was portrayed as crucified. This is a verb in the perfect tense for you grammarians, which means that though it is an accomplished event, its impacts, its consequences are ongoing. The fruit of it is still going on to this day. This morning may be the first time uh, that you've set foot in a church. And so, I wanted, I thought it appropriate for us to take some time to portray Christ as crucified. What does that mean? It means the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them is holy. He is perfect. He is morally pure. And if you know yourself, or if you know any other human being in the world, you know that we are not that way. We are not morally perfect or pure. We may try to be good, we may try to strive after that, but we all fall miserably short of that. And so the Bible teaches that because of that, we deserve condemnation, we deserve death, because we do not reach up to God's holy standard. But because of God's great love, He became man as Jesus Christ. He died on the cross accepting penalty for all sin that we might know God. It's why the cross is all over this room. It's why it's the central icon of Christianity. Christ portrayed as crucified is everything. And so by being crucified, by rising again Jesus has accomplished for you all that you might hope to accomplish, all that you might hope to strive for in holiness, in perfection. You must be holy to stand before a holy God. And it is only through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that that can be so. And so Paul publicly portrayed Christ as crucified. In Acts 13, a snippet of his sermon says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Christ's death on the cross is what saves. Looking to Christ and his work on the cross is the source of salvation. It enables us to be declared righteous, to be justified. It frees us from eternal death, but it also enables us to have communion with God's spirit who is sanctifying us now. And So as we think about the consequences of the crucifixion. What does it mean for our church in this day and age to publicly portray Christ as crucified? There are a few things that came to mind, three consequences of the cross. Briefly, it aids our worship. I think everything that we do on a Sunday morning, I hope you see publicly portray Christ as crucified when we gather on a Sunday morning, when we sing, when we hear God's word preached, when we gather in fellowship, everything should be geared toward portraying Christ as crucified. We can laugh, we can have joy, we can have seriousness and sobriety and tears, because both of those are present in the cross. Later this morning, we're going to take communion, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, And that is an opportunity for us especially to remember christ's death on the cross and publicly portray him as a church as crucified the second consequence of this is that it wards off false teaching if everything if we take everything that we hear through this lens does this truth portray christ as crucified consider how much false teachings such as what the Galatian church encountered would be flagged as inconsistent with the gospel. And lastly, the crucifixion, portraying Christ as crucified, it leaves no room for works. Galatians 2.21 says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Jesus is everything. Jesus plus anything else is nothing. When we add extra to Jesus, the cross becomes extraneous. And so, having reminded the Galatians of the foundational work of Christ on the cross, Paul points the believers to two more lines of evidence that grace, not the law, is the means of salvation. The testimony of the Galatians' own experience as well as the testimony of scripture. And don't worry, we will go faster than it took us to go through one verse. So not only does the foolish Christian forget the work of Christ, but the foolish Christian also forgets their own experience of faith. The foolish Christian forgets their own experience. And we see that in verses two through five. Paul says, Do you want to know what role works play in your salvation? Think back to when you became a Christian. How did that happen initially? And so he asks in verse two How did you receive the Spirit? How did you go about doing that? What was that like? Was it through your obedience and adherence to the law? Was it because you were circumcised that you received the Spirit? Paul says, no, emphatically, no. You did not receive the Spirit because of your efforts and your striving. Instead, the means by which you received the Spirit, look with me here in verse 2, he says was by hearing with faith. Now, hearing in and of itself, is a pretty passive action. Your ears are gonna hear. Even if you don't want to hear what I'm saying right now, you're, you're hearing it audibly. You don't need to actively turn on your ears for them to hear something. And anyone who listens to a Christian radio program or this sermon is gonna hear the gospel, hopefully. But Paul does qualify our hearing, right? In what way? did you hear, you heard with faith. And so you might say, ah, I get it, okay. The works of the law were not how I was saved, but I exercised faith when I heard the gospel, and that is how I received the Spirit. And so in that way, we can even subtly warp something like having faith itself into a work of man which makes it no better than circumcision, no better than any other work of the law. But the testimony of scripture is that faith, the very faith with which we heard the gospel itself is from God. Our ability to hear with faith, how Paul says we received the spirit is God given. Galatians five says faith is a fruit the spirit. Hebrews 12 says Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. First Corinthians 12 lists faith as a gift of God's spirit. Romans 10, very similar passage to ours this morning, says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it is Christ speaking in his word, convicting us by his spirit of its truth that is the source of our faith. So from day one as a Christian, our receiving the Holy Spirit, our very faith in God, and our trust in him to fulfill his promises are fueled by God alone, apart from works. And so Paul continues, he asks them, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. He says, if this is how you started, why change course now? Being perfected is not necessarily the idea of moral perfection, but one of completion. If you've started in the spirit, are you hoping now to complete the course by works, by some other means? Imagine you buy a car um, that runs on gasoline It's a gasoline engine. Everything about the construct of its engine and fuel pump system are fine-tuned for that. At the beginning, you may be well aware of that. You take care of it. You use gas every time you fill up. But perhaps somewhere along the way, you remember that you used to drive a diesel engine. So the next time you're at the the gas station, you put in a little bit of diesel into your gas-powered car. And you kind of forget what fuels your car to begin with? But when you do that, you don't end up with this cool gas, diesel hybrid. You end up with a ruined engine, you, a ruined car. And so in much the same way, church, your salvation was not designed to be fueled by works. You were not justified, declared righteous by your works. You will not be sanctified and made righteous by your works. Instead, you started by reliance on the Spirit who brought you from death to life in Christ. And to this day, you will continue your sanctification by that same Spirit. God's word in Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring to completion, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let us not change course now. The way your faith began is what will see you to completion. And so Paul asks, did you suffer, did you experience so much in your Christian life in vain because if you turn to works, you empty the cross of its power. Verse five, Paul concludes that God himself does not give you his spirit, nor does he work miracles or do mighty things on the basis of your works, but by faith. And so as Pastor Daniel prayed earlier today, for, today, for us today, this is crucial, this is critical. Was I saved? because I was baptized, because I went to church regularly, because I read the Bible and had a great streak in my Bible plan. Paul says, no, you did not receive the spirit by works of the law or your obedience to God's word. You received the spirit by hearing with faith, which comes from God. And so if you're a follower of Christ, take heart that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You cannot run the race with a different fuel than with which you began it. But if you are not a Christian this morning, it is entirely appropriate, I think, for you to ask God to give you faith this morning. When we recognize our inability to live up to God's holy, perfect standard, we ought to say, God, I need you to act, to give me faith, help me to trust you and your word. And that is not a prayer that God will ignore for those he's chosen. And so the foolish Christian forgets, first, the work of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, and their own experience of salvation and faith. And so lastly... In verses six through nine, let's see how the foolish Christian forgets God's faith-filled word. And so Paul now turns beyond the personal experience of the Galatians to God's word in scripture. What does scripture, what does the Old Testament have to say about the role of works in our righteousness? And so Paul takes us back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, and quotes Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was considered righteousness by God. You see, Abraham is the great patriarch of the Jewish people. He's the one with whom God established a covenant that gave rise to Israel and ultimately to the law of Moses. And so Paul points to this great hero of the faith to dismantle the case of the Judaizers, the ones who insisted that circumcision was required. And he points to Abraham to establish his own. You see, Genesis 15.6 says, Abraham was considered righteous, justified, on the basis of believing God Trusting that God would accomplish his promises. But this was over 10 years before God introduced circumcision as a sign of the covenant. The Judaizers make a big deal about circumcision being necessary to truly follow God. But Paul says, don't be foolish. If Abraham, this great hero of the faith, Faith in God, if he was justified apart from circumcision, then circumcision cannot be a means of salvation, cannot be the means by which we are justified. And he says not only did this end with Abraham, but this is the basis of all of our faith as well. Know then, he says in verse seven, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, all who are of faith are true sons of Abraham. While the Judaizers believed that their connection to Abraham was through physical means, it was through their heritage, their pedigree, the act of circumcision itself, Paul says that what connects believers to Abraham is our spiritual connection, our shared confidence in, the reliance, in our reliance on God to actualize his promises. So look Briefly with me at at verse eight. It says, likewise, Abraham was told that all the nations would be blessed through him. Abraham didn't know all that God intended, but God knew and preached the gospel to him ahead of time. The gospel that says that Jews and Gentiles alike are justified by faith through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. Jesus. And so we are called to be of faith in verse nine, to be blessed along with Abraham who is described as a man of faith. This is an adjective, this isn't a noun. Man of faith is one word in the Greek. We could maybe translate it as faithful or faithy, one who is full and marked by faith and confidence in God. And that is a beautiful aspiration for us this morning to be known, not for our looks or our accomplishments, but for our faith in God. And like Abraham, being known for our faith will invariably lead to action. You see, when we think of the example of Abraham that Paul brings up, Abraham showed great faith in God that was exercised He trusted God's promises to leave his family and travel to an unknown land. He trusted that God would make him a mighty nation even though he and his wife were too old to conceive. He trusted that God would honor his promises even when asked to sacrifice the one person he was told the promise would pass through. Abraham didn't merely believe in God or facts about God, that is not faith. He didn't ascribe to a series of theological statements and call it a day. In contrast, his trust in God, it couldn't help but fuel action, couldn't help but fuel works and obedience. And so brothers and sisters, this morning I urge you to walk in step with the Spirit, do not turn to anything else to fuel your Christian life. Do not lean on your perfect church attendance or your Bible reading or abstaining from sexual sin as the ultimate metric for your sanctification. We must guard against seeing these good and necessary works as more than the fruit God has produced in our hearts and lives, for they cannot save us. The 18th century Scottish minister, Ralph Erskine, penned a poem that has been reproduced in a few different forms, that I think helpfully captures what it means to be a a man and woman of faith, living out works of righteousness. He wrote, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so in a few minutes after we remember Christ's death, publicly portray him as crucified by observing the Lord's supper together, we are going to sing a hymn based on Galatians 3 to the tune of Come Thou Fount. And it is new for us, but I I hope it's an opportunity to reflect on the words of this chapter that is so, so rich in the accomplishments of God for your salvation. The foolish Christian, according to God's word, forgets three crucial things, the work of Christ on the cross, they forget their own experience of following Jesus, and they forget the testimony of Scripture that from beginning to end is saturated with the grace of God apart from our works. So let us take the opportunity this morning to cast off any foolishness we may be clinging to and instead be men and women who, like Abraham, are marked by faith in God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we worship you this morning We worship you this morning for your mercy toward us, for saving us when we were yet far off from you, and we praise you for accomplishing our salvation from beginning to end, completely apart from any good that we might attempt to manufacture. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus and his mighty work on the cross, May we, as a church, publicly portray him as crucified. May our confident trust in you testify to your work in our lives, that all peoples would see our faith, our resulting good works, and praise you. Lord, keep us from foolishness, but cause us to remember the fuel of our salvation, which is your grace, manifest in faith. And it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Ben, for bringing us the word of God and for reminding us that we are saved by faith alone, and even our faith is a gift from God. And we indeed do not want to be foolish Christians, and one way we can do that now